So today we begin in chapter 4 of the book of Hosea. Chapter 4, as we see Hosea continue to call the northern kingdom of Israel to repentance, turn to Hosea 4. And as you get there, you know, Paul writes to his uh, spiritual child in the faith, Timothy. Uh, and in 2 Timothy, he writes to him, warning him about the nature of those who are associated with the church, who may be in around the church, but aren't truly in the church. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 tells us, Paul warns, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 Paul warns Timothy that there will be those who seek teachers to suit their own passions. But who's at fault for that? Who is at issue there? Who's responsible for these itching years? Well, certainly the people share some blame in this, right? The people who want these things share some blame. They want for someone to confirm and console them about the passions within them. And this, by the way, is part of the problem we find with social media because the mysterious algorithm does just that, right? It satisfies our itching ears because it gives us what we want to hear, right? What we want to see. How do we know that? Because that's what his purpose is. To suggest to us more teachers to suit our passions. But we can't blame the people alone, right? The teachers bear responsibility. The teachers know that they can gain an audience, garner attention and praise, by preaching and teaching what the people want to hear in the place of what the people need to hear. The people have itching ears, but the teachers have itching palms. And today, as we come to our passage, we find a similar problem in the time of Hosea. The priests who were supposed to lead the people in knowledge of holiness and knowledge about God, the, the, who were supposed to lead the people in righteousness and faithfulness, weren't. To which Hosea cries out, and what I want us to see today in our passage, that God will bring to ruin both priest and people for their wicked ways. God will bring to ruin both priest and people for their wicked ways. Or we might say in our own day, God will bring to ruin both people and preacher for their wicked ways. So let us turn to Hosea 4. And we'll look at verses 1 through 14 today, and I'll read that for us. Hosea chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother." My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory to shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. 
My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. And this is the word of the Lord. As we situate ourselves in the text here, right before this, right, chapter 3 represents kind of an interlude, a break in the oracle cycle, because it presents a, a direct object lesson from the life of Hosea once again. Right? We, we saw that at the very beginning in Hosea 1, where uh, he is told to go and marry a wife of unfaithfulness. And have children of unfaithfulness. And, and in Hosea 3, we see Hosea is supposed to go and love again a wife of unfaithfulness. And now we get back into chapter 4, uh, this kind of direct message to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel about their sinfulness. Right? So we're not using object lesson anymore. And now we're back into straight prophecy, uh, straight forthtelling about the, the nature of of the nation of Israel. God is not done with the indictment of his people. We saw portion of it in chapter 2, and we pick that back up again today. Promises of judgment, and and here we don't even have right a promise of restoration yet. So today let's begin and see in verses 1 through 3, a murderous land. A murderous land in verses 1 through 3. And again, we see the declaration, right? Hear the word of the Lord. This is something we often see within the the prophetic announcements. Hear the word of the Lord. Not hear the word of Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Listen to God, O people. They had fooled themselves long enough. They thought God was silent on the matter of which uh, they had been committing uh, in worshiping false gods. They thought God approved of it because they lived in a time of prosperity by the way, is a byword for us. Just because we live in a time of prosperity doesn't mean that God approves of what we are doing. Uh, And that's both on a a national level and also on an individual level. We cannot take prosperity to mean approval from God. But God is speaking to them. They can mistake it no longer. God is speaking with them and he has a controversy, right? He says there, "For, for the Lord has a controversy. And this word indicates something like a case at law again there's kind of a lawsuit uh idea here going on but it's not strictly pressed right so this isn't exactly a lawsuit it's not exactly an indictment as we might see uh in a a court of law but it's similar to that god has a dispute with the people and he is bringing them to account and this case is against the inhabitants of the land And that itself is an interesting phrase, because who are the inhabitants of the land? The people of Israel. Well, why doesn't God just say, the Lord has an, right? Because he says it right before, children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy. Why doesn't he just say, with the people of Israel? And it seems like this is code for us. This is to help us understand that the people aren't the people of Israel, right? They are lo-ami, not my people. And so they're not even named, right? They have, they have so violated God's command, the covenant, that they're not even worthy of being called the covenant people. They're not Israel. They're not the people of God. They are just the inhabitants of the land. The people have lost the right. But what is this dispute about? The Lord has controversy. What's the controversy about? Well, first we see there is no faithfulness. We've already seen this reality in the book of Hosea, the unfaithfulness of the people, right? They're unfaithful to God. God has been using this metaphor of of a wife who commits adultery. That's what chapter 3 represents, right? Uh, When God said, go and love an adulteress, someone who is unfaithful, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. 
people of unfaithfulness. But this word also has connotations with truthfulness and reliability, and we could even say integrity. And one of the things we see is that there is no integrity in the land. And we certainly get the sense of that when we get to verse 2 of chapter 4, right? There's no integrity in the land. The people are utterly destitute of faithfulness to God and to one another. So first, no faithfulness. Second, no steadfast love. Or we might see there uh, compassion or loving kindness or mercy. This is the word in the Hebrew hesed, if you know that word. This is the covenantal love. There is no loving kindness here, no steadfast love. And this idea of love is more than just obligation. Right? So, so what Hosea is saying, what God is saying through Hosea is the people don't have uh, this extended love. Maybe they do what they are obligated to do, but they don't go beyond that. They do not extend kindness to one another. They, we could say, think only of themselves. They think only of their own needs. They're selfish in their love. Thirdly, there is no knowledge of God in the land. No knowledge of God. The people of Israel, the inhabitants of the land, lack knowledge about God. They don't know him. They don't know his ways. They don't understand his commands. They don't have a heart knowledge. Right? They are not moved or stirred by love of God. They don't even know who he is. And at this point, I wonder how many churches in our own day God could bring a dispute with about this. There is no knowledge of God. There is this dangerous current within the church at large to skew knowledge. To say, I don't need to study God. I don't need to study the Bible. I don't need to study theology. I don't need to know doctrine. Creeds, confession, who needs that? I'm a man of the Bible. The Bible's my creed. They say such things, but they don't even know their Bible. They don't study it. They don't under, seek to understand God or His ways. They want nothing more, it seems, than to hear some good word to them that can assuage their guilt and calm their fears, but do nothing about their sin. How many churches there are that preach a message with no knowledge about God in it, but everything about man. Biblical literacy in our nation is falling quickly. And we have preachers and teachers who fail to instruct the people of God. And what is the result? Well, we see the result in the day of Hosea. Verse 2 tells us, There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. What follows for the people of Israel is civil strife. In the society of the northern kingdom, though there's a veneer of peace and prosperity for all, it is just that, a veneer. It's a surface layer because sin runs rampant. We begin and it says they're swearing, and this is likely the idea of cursing someone. So cursing them in the name of the God, calling down some, some curse upon them in the name of some God. There's lying. Right? As a practice, as a way of life, they don't tell the truth. Murder. They kill and destroy one another. And this is a heinous sin because life is most precious. Right? They, they willfully destroy those created in the image of God because they are in the way. And none on earth have that right. Stealing. What they don't have, they want. And what they want, they get, no matter how it takes to get it. Committing adultery. This is not just in the metaphorical sense, as we've been talking about their unfaithfulness to God. This is also in a quite literal sense. And we see that at the end of our passage today, like verse 14, right? The daughters, the brides, they commit adultery, and the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. Right? So literal adultery, not just metaphorical. 
And as you read through this, you may have thought, well, this listing sounds a little familiar. Right? It sounds a whole lot like the Ten Commandments. And I think that's what Hosea is doing. Right? The Ten Commandments are so fundamental to the law of God that Hosea is saying, okay, let's, let's not go to like esoteric commandments. Like, are you wearing uh, clothes with, with mixed, uh, with wool and cotton mixed into it? Let's not go to something like that. Let's go to the base 10 and see what is the nature of this nation and what is the nature of this nation. He doesn't even list there the obvious ones, which is no other God, no graven image. Right. What we see is a people who have uh, as a as a kind of litmus test here, they failed it. And I wonder, too, whether we in our own society are on the brink. What would God have to say to a land that celebrates sin? That murders the unborn for the sake of convenience and disguises it under the guise of so-called rights. That lies so much that we have to invent phrases like fake news. And the list goes on. What is God's message to our land? To us. Now, the last parts of verse two here are, are difficult to translate in the, in the Hebrew, uh, and scholars and translations disagree on it. But the sense, uh, one sense of it seems to be this. The people break out in these sins in the land. Sorry, these are the sins and the people break out in them. This is what they do. And as a result, Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Violence breaks out. Hate festers and erupts. It reminded me of James 4, 1 through 4. James 4, 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Going back over that in James, I know we were just there not that long ago, but now being in Hosea, I wonder if James didn't maybe have a bit of Hosea in his mind as he wrote that. If the Spirit did not bring this this passage to his mind. Because what is the cause of hatred and violence in the land? Untamed desires, unbound sins, right? The people want, they don't have, so they murder. They covet and cannot obtain, so they fight and quarrel. Passions without placation. And as a result, they make themselves enemies of God. Right? They commit adultery and make themselves enemies of God. And again, I would ask you to consider our own society. Should it be normal that a man takes a weapon into a crowd and discharges it? Why then does it feel so normal in our society? Why is it that it seems like every weekend, every week, There's another story of another mass shooting. Why does bloodshed follow bloodshed? And in all this, where is the church? Where are the people of God? And brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to pray for this nation. Pray for this world. Pray that the Christ, uh, the, the, the peace of Christ the justice and righteousness of God would reign. And moreover, examine yourselves. Because Hosea wasn't preaching to a Gentile nation. He was preaching to what were to be the people of God. He wasn't preaching to a pagan people. And yet, in this people, there's no faithfulness or steadfast love. There is no knowledge of God. And instead, there is swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, and committing adultery, breaking of all bounds, and, com- and bloodshed following bloodshed. There is no justice and righteousness. 
In a land that should have been filled with holiness, there is only unrighteousness. And how many there are in our own land, in our own churches, that profess the name of Christ, and yet would Christ do what these people are doing? And I would submit to you, would Christ do what you are doing? There is great need for repentance. Let it start with us. Let it start here and now. Let us turn from these evil things and seek the Lord. But as for the inhabitants of the land in the days of Hosea, verse 3 tells us, therefore the land mourns. And this is a metaphorical statement to say that there's drought in the land. And this is something God promised, right? He said, uh, Hosea 2.9, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which are to cover her nakedness. Right? What God has promised is going to come true. The land mourns because it's desolate, it's deprived, and there is nothing. There's no life in the land. Right? See that in verse 3, right? And all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. We have an uncreation story here, right? Go back to Genesis 1. We, we have the creation of the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish in the sea. And here they're all being taken away. And it seems strange. Well, how could a drought kill fish in the sea, But uh, unless the sea is entirely dried up? It might be kind of indicative, right, of the, the land has been so desolate that the people have fished in the water so much that there's not even fish left in them. Or maybe God has stopped the fish from being able to reproduce. But what we have is a overworked land to no avail, a beast of the field who are gone, a birds of the heaven that have flown away, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. It's a murderous land in the land of the northern kingdom of Israel. And let us see that it is by the priest's hand. Let's see that next in verses 4 to 11. By the priest's hand. Verse 4 says, Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse thee. For with you is my contention, O priest. Now, again, here we have some very difficult Hebrew. If you remember at the outset of our study in the book of Hosea, uh, I mentioned that Hosea has some of the most difficult Hebrew in all the Old Testament, save the book of Job. So as we go through this, uh, there are a few places in our passage here where I'm going to comment upon the difficulty of the Hebrew and understand that scholars disagree, translations disagree, and there's not... Uh, one consensus on this, but we can get the sense of what God is saying to the people. Uh, but there are two main ways to understand this verse. One is the way that the ESV renders it, which is, yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. And it, and it means something like this, right? Don't argue with one another about why this problem exists. Don't let, don't argue again, uh, among one another. Don't say, well, whose fault is it that we're in this situation? Because God says, my contention is with you, priest. Priest, you're at fault. Another is something like the way the KJV renders it, which it translates it, yet let no man strive nor reprove another. So similar in the beginning. But for thy people as they are as they that strive with the priest. For thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Commentator Dwayne Garrett argues this could mean something like when the people accuse one another for the trouble that they're in, saying, like, you know, it's your fault, they are actually contending with the priest. They're actually arguing with the priest. So when they point at one another and say, it's your fault we're in this situation, what they're really doing is pointing through that person to the priest standing behind them. It's your fault, priest. It's the religious leaders that are at fault. Calvin argues about this passage that it, it could mean something like the people had gotten so arrogantly sinful that they are in such an arrogantly sinful state that they actually begin to argue with their teachers, suggesting that perhaps the priests were trying to do what is right, but the people didn't care what the priest said and that they actually argued against what the priest said. They said, we're not going to listen to you in your ways. Forget you. We know it's right. 
But we see the meaning here, right? That, that there is contention and accusation among one another, but at fault lies the priest. So what is the result? Verse 5. You shall stumble by day. And who is God talking here? Talking to here. It's the priest. Priest, you shall stumble by day. And the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. The religious leaders, rather than directing the people to walk in holiness, had failed in their duties, and God proclaims judgment. (coughs) They will stumble. And what is meant by stumbling is not that they're going to walk and trip a little, right? But whenever we see stumbling in the scripture like this, it is always in reference to divine judgment, to over being overthrown, to being cast down. And God adds, I will destroy your mother. All right. And mother, as we have seen thus far in the book of Hosea, is in reference to the political institutions, the government and such of the people. So what is God saying in this verse? That the political establishment, the religious establishment, all of the social institutions of the northern kingdom of Israel are going to be laid to waste. There is coming a day, Hosea preaches, when the northern kingdom of Israel will be unrecognizable because all of its institutions will be destroyed. There'll be nothing left. At least nothing of their own left. We know that when the Assyrians come in, they put in their institutions, right? They establish their way. And the ways of the northern kingdom are lost. So God says, the priest will stumble, the prophet will stumble, by day and by night, meaning all the time, right? They're going to be utterly destroyed. And so will Mother Israel. And God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Right? The people of God are destroyed. Uh, The people run off into all kinds of sins because in one sense they don't know better. And why don't they know better? Because the people responsible for teaching have failed in their duties. And this is a problem not just in Hosea's day, but as I've said before, even in our own day. There are some so-called churches who will not teach about sin. They are very popular. Very popular. The most popular. So-called Christian preachers who say, I'm not going to teach about sin. That's what they say. I'm not putting words in their mouth. That's literally what they say. I, it's not my job to teach about sin. Preacher, what is your job? It's to teach the people. There are so many who misrepresent God's word and what terrors await such preachers and teachers of God. They would do well to heed the warning of Matthew 5, 19 to 20. Matthew 5, 19 to 20. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In view here might even be the Ten Commandments alone. So as Jesus is speaking, he's saying, whoever relaxes the least of these. Now, which commandments of God are the least? Obviously, that's not a determination that God makes. That's a determination we make, right? We say, ah, this one's not as important. To which Jesus says, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And being called least doesn't just mean that they're like, you know, in the back somewhere. It means that they're not even in it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, and I mean this sincerely, forgive me if I have ever led you astray about the reality of sin. If I have ever loosened one of, the, one of the commands of God in order to appease you, forgive me. Take seriously the word of God. 
every bit of it, from start to finish, live in accord with it. Don't take my word about what is important. Go to the scriptures and hear from God. And I think that God's grace is sufficient. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so may we ever lean on Christ, trust in him and him alone. But as for these priests in Hosea's day, what is, what is their end? Because you have rejected knowledge, because you have said it's not important to know me, to study me, to understand my ways, because you have done this, O priest, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. God promises that they will be rejected, cast out, and forgotten. And this word children here, this this idea of children, I will forget your children, it could be twofold. It could be met in a dual sense. One is quite literally about the priest's children. We see this in the scriptures where God says, because you have done this, you and your children, your household is cut off and it will be no more. It'll be utterly destroyed. You won't have even a youngling left. And it could also be more metaphorical, right, about the people of Israel because the priests could see themselves, right? I'm Hi, I'm Father Priest and you're my child, Israel. And they'll be forgotten too. How many people were cut off from the out of the history of the world because of the unfaithfulness of priests and people alike? Verse seven says, "The more they increase, the more they sinned against me." Uh, the the net translation expands this verse to give us the meaning more clearly. So I'll read that for us. The net translation says it this way: "The more the priests increased in numbers, the more they rebelled against me." They have turned their glorious calling into a shameful disgrace. They have turned their glorious calling into a shameful disgrace. And how have they done this? Well, they feed on the sin of my people. And this word sin here is the same word that we see for sin offering. They feed on the sin of the people. The priests had a right to the portion of the offering. And if you add in this idea of the greed of their iniquity, uh, that we see at the end of this verse, at verse 8. Uh, th- it's this idea, it, it's something like we get during the worst excesses of the Roman Catholic Church and the selling of indulgences, right? This, this is kind of the idea that we get that is going on here. The people would sin, and the priest would make sure uh, that the people know that they could help them out. So it would go something like this. You come up to the priest and you say, I've sinned. Oh, no worry. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Just bring an offering. Everything will be fine. Oh, don't forget to make sure it's a good good lamb, a good cattle. Uh, make sure it's this, this, this age uh, of, of cattle because I really like it. Maybe bring a little wine with you too. Make sure it's the good stuff. Bring an offering and we'll offer it to God and he'll forgive you. Oh, you sinned again. No worry, not a big deal. Just bring me an offering. Oh, not that same pesky sin again. You know what? Don't worry about it. Stop fretting over it. Stop punishing yourself. Just indulge a little. And when you're done, come bring me a sacrifice and I'll sacrifice to God and everything will be grand. I'll make sure you're all right. And it's a sickening thing. Because what these priests were doing were cheapening God's grace, downplaying immorality, and exploiting the people. And this is not the first time something like this has happened in the land of Israel. Turn back to, and I encourage you to turn, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. In verses 12 through 17. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 12 to 17. So a little history. We're here at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, right? And 
Samuel's uh, born, given to the Lord. Hannah's prayers answered, right? She has Samuel. She gives him to the Lord. She prays. And then we get this story. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. What does it say of them? They did not know the Lord. Sounds familiar. The custom of the priests or the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if a man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it to now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was great, very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now Eli is the high priest, and here he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they had a number of problems. Uh, They had a number of immoralities, but this passage gives us uh, a couple of them here. In view of this passage is they wanted to feast. They wanted the best of the meat. They wanted the fatty portion of the meat in contradiction to the way that God had told them that the priests would be fed. The priests were to get a portion of the sacrifice. This was their portion. God had had, uh, set forth that in his law. But what the priests said, what, what these two sons of Eli did, they said, listen, we don't want that boiled stuff that's been boiled to death And when you stick the fork in, it's been cooked so long that all you get is a little shred out. No, we want good stuff. We want fatty stuff. The fat was to be the Lord's alone. But they said, you know what? The fat gives it juice. It gives it flavor. It gives it taste. Mmm, man, that's some good roast lamb. That's what we want. And so what did they do? They cajoled the other priests and said, Anytime you see someone sacrificing, go in there early, go in there with a big fork, go in there, make sure you get it before they they burn it all to the Lord. We're hungry. You take care of us, we'll take care of you. And such were the evils of the two sons of Eli. Right? They held the Lord with contempt. The scripture here says that they held the Lord's offering with contempt, but understand that that means they held the Lord with contempt, right? They did not hold God as holy. They did not consider his sacrifice as holy. They did not consider God's word, God's commands as something to be done. They did not know the Lord. And here we come to Hosea and we find the very similar situation. God's wrath brought the two sons of Eli to an end. It also brought Eli to an end he failed to do anything about it. And verse 9 of Hosea 4 tells us, And it shall be like people, like priest. Like people, like priest. And maybe that was like a little byword in the day. Maybe like a good, good thing. Like, oh, the priests are doing well. People are doing well. People are doing well. The priests are doing well. But they would be destroyed for their sinful ways. The people would be. And so too the priests. And the priests may have thought that they would be exempt from God's judgment because they were the priests after all, right? Hey, man, I'm a holy man. God will protect me. Wrong. Right? James warns us in our own day out of James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There are preachers and teachers within the church that think their office gives them license to sin. But what judgment awaits them? God have mercy on me. Verse 10. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord. They shall strive but gain nothing. They shall do what they love but only find that gnawing sense of emptiness that never satisfies. 
And scholars are unsure. Here we have again a difficult portion of Hebrew because scholars are unsure where this next verse should be split, verses 10 and 11, where they should be split. Some take the whoredom of verse 11 in the ESV, renders verse uh, verse 11 beginning with whoredom. Some take that and apply that back to verse verse 10. So because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, period, and then wine and new wine. Uh, in some place that as the ESV do. And by the way, this is just a note here, but the, the verse numbering is a, something that has been added on to the scriptures. Hosea didn't write verse numbers next to his text. And we kind of infer, right, that scholars infer uh, what is a verse and what is not a verse. And so sometimes those are uh, unhelpful to us, but for the most part, they are helpful tools. Because when I say, look at Hosea, verse 4, verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11, you know where I'm at. And I don't just have to say, well, open up your scrolls and, you know, somewhere towards the middle and and hope for the best that you get there eventually. Uh, But I digress. Verse 11 gives us what seems to be a kind of proverb. It seems to be a kind of proverb. Whoredom wine and new wine, which take away their understanding. The sense we get is God, is God is saying here that the people run from debauchery to debauchery. Uh, they get their fill of unfaithfulness. They get their fill of old wine, meaning really good, fermented, uh, good tasting stuff. And they get their fill of new wine, which is still fermented, still alcoholic, uh, but maybe a little less so. They do anything to get plastered and dull the senses. And in this, they lose their way. And this word for understanding is heart or the inner man. So, so in other words, it's, it's this idea that they run to debauchery and lose themselves in the process. And this is something that, God, that which God will not stand. And so let's consider that thirdly. That which God will not stand in verses 12 through 14. That which God will not stand. Verse 12 says, uh, my people inquire of a piece of wood. And their walking staff gives oracles, right? What are the people doing? They're reading the tea leaves. They're casting the chicken bones, right? They're they're doing all sorts of divination, magical incantations to try and understand the will of the gods. And I say that because God is not divine that way, right? The will of God is not divine that way. But they look everywhere to everything. Uh, they, they look to, to wood, chunks of wood. They look to their walking staff. If there's some way to divine the will of some God, they try it. And not only that, but verse 13 tells us, and not only do that, not only has the spirit of whoredom led them astray, But they sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under all sorts of trees and and groves of trees because their shade is good. And the idea is something like this. The, the, The benefit to the common person would be something like this. So put yourself in their position and then you might understand a little bit what's so appealing about doing this way. Why don't they just go to Jerusalem like they're supposed to and worship in the temple? Well, put yourself in their position. The appeal to the common person was, you get to go up on a little mountaintop, on a little hilltop, you get to look over the land, and you get to see its beauty. But you're not on the top of the mountain where it's there's no trees or anything, where it's the sun's beating down on you and you feel, you know, like faint. You're in the groves of the trees. So here you are in the middle of this, this idyllic place, right? You're looking out over everything. You're under the shade of a good tree. You can feel the breeze blowing atop the mountain. Wow, that's really nice. Not only that, but if you bring a sacrifice and you offer a sacrifice, you get a portion of that sacrifice. So here you are having a little lunchtime retreat up in the groves of the trees on top of the mountain, sacrificing to a God, you know, appealing to him, appeasing him, eating a little, enjoying that. And hey, if the cult prostitute is there, why not? 
you get your fill of that too. All in all, that's a pretty good day, right? Except for it's absolutely repugnant to God. It's an affront to a holy God. Isaiah preaches this pointedly. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Isaiah chapter 1, 28 and 29. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. You think sacrifice on these mountaintops and that the, the shade of these trees, well, they're real good. Well, you're going to be ashamed of it real quick. And then it says even right, therefore your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. Again, literal adultery here. But then we have this strange thing in verse 14. God continues and says, I will not punish your daughters seems counterintuitive, right? I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. And what is he saying? Why does he, why does he say this? It's not as though they won't be punished, but he's not going to punish them solely. Because look at what he says here. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And again, the idea here was, on that last part, sacrifice with cult prostitutes, they would go to a place of worship, they would offer a sacrifice. Uh, they and the, the person, so the man offering the sacrifice and the cult prostitute would eat of it, and then they would go and uh, commit adultery together. And God says to them, for the men do likewise. Why should I punish the daughters and the brides when the men are doing the same thing? The men who should be delighting in their wives and in no other are, are instead delighting in any other and anything and not in their wives. <clears throat> Why should God punish the woman alone when the men are doing just as bad? Adultery was and is a serious sin. But even in the early history of the people of God, there exists this double standard. And let me state it plainly, plainly here. There is no double standard with God. If you commit sin, you will be punished for that sin. You will be judged for that sin. And unless there is a sacrifice made, the only good and perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ, unless that is applied to your account, you shall suffer the just punishment of your sins. God does not show partiality. We may do so. And we have an example in the scripture of which such partiality, such double standard in terms of adultery comes up. Go to Genesis 38, and you find the story of Judah and Tamar. Judah and Tamar. Now, Tamar had married one of the sons of Judah, and her first husband dies. And the scripture is clear. God kills the first husband for his wickedness. God takes him out of the world. And then, in an effort to continue uh, that one's line, because we see that, in the scripture, this, this idea of continuing the, the name of a person, uh, Judah gives one of his other sons to Tamar to bear a child, and that man too commits wickedness and dies. And Tamar is still childless. Now Judah says to her, I'll give you another one of my sons. Don't worry, have another son. He's young, but when he gets old enough, I'll make sure to give him to you and we can have a propagation of the line of my first son. But he never gave it. He never gave that son. And, and the scripture there tells us that uh, he fears that his third son will die because of it. That maybe Tamar is somehow kind of this ancient times black widow killing everyone she comes, killing every man she comes in contact with, right? So Tamar concocts a plan to get Judah, her father-in-law, essentially, to sleep with her and to provide her a child. And so she does, and he does, and they do. 
And we get to verses 24 to 26. And here we find the double standard. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, what does Judah say? Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, O father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them. And there's a reason Judah was able to identify them, because they were his. And he had given them to her unbeknowingly. And said, so Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. So Judah was ready to burn Tamar at the stake for her committing immorality. Not adultery, because she wasn't actually married at the time, but immorality all the same. Until, oops, you realize he was the man that she committed immorality with. Which meant he committed adultery. He was looking for a cult prostitute. He was looking for a good time. And he had it. And he thought that that's good enough. And until he himself was revealed to be the culprit, he was ready to execute the justice of God. Until such time he realized, right? And then he's like, oops, never mind. She's righteous, I'm not. But let's just move on. Let's just forget this whole affair. Men, we ought to be held to a higher standard. Men, you are to lead your wife. If you are married, husbands, you're to lead your wife. You are to lead your family. The first man failed in his calling. He failed to protect his wife. And look where we are as a result. Be strong in the Lord, men. Lead by example. Lead well. Lead in holiness. Give God the glory to his name. And wives, hold your men to it. Because a people without understanding shall be ruined. And that's the last part of our verse here, right? Verse 14, a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Again, it seems like a little proverb that Hosea is inserting here. A people without understanding shall come to ruin. And God is going to bring to ruin the priest along with the people. Like people, like priests. The religious leaders of the people of God will find themselves under the same and yet stricter judgment for their failure to lead the people in faithfulness. Again, I would submit to you James 3.1 for us today. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. This is a warning that all within the church should heed, especially its leaders. Teachers and pastors may think that they have a special place with God by virtue of their office, but understand this. Their service to God will not make up for their unrighteousness. Indeed, there are those that have made such statements as they deserve whatever sinful passions that they have, that they can indulge in them because they are serving God. And I have in my mind one especially uh, prominent person within Christendom who made such statements to vulnerable women. I need this. I deserve this. What I do is so difficult. And I need your body to make it better. Well, may Christ say to such a one, and I do not know if in this man's case, if this is what Christ said. I, I do not know, but God knows. But well may God say to such a one, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. And brothers and sisters in Christ understand that there are wolves, as the Bible calls them, 
who are out there seeking to devour you. There are those teachers and preachers who will tell you everything you want to hear and nothing that you do not. There are those that seek their own kingdom to enlarge it and not the kingdom of God. And therefore, it is incumbent upon you to know the word of God. It's incumbent upon you. It's your responsibility to study the scriptures. And when error arises, rebuke it or ignore it, depending on the context. And what I mean by that is if it's something close to you, someone close to you, rebuke it, reprove it, correct it. If it's someone on the other side of the nation, you probably should just ignore it because you don't have any ability to speak into that situation, right? So just ignore it. Don't promote it. And when you hear other people talking about it, say, ah, you shouldn't listen to them. You should really understand. Go to the scriptures and see how what they say isn't in line with it. Because we do have to do that. How many have I heard that have, uh, talked about various teachers and, and, and preachers, so-called teachers and preachers within the church uh, who, who do not teach in accord with the scripture. And yet they say, oh, I watch that program. Oh, I read her books. She's really great. And it may be incumbent upon us to say, no, she's not as great as you think. Go to the scriptures and see what they say. Don't take her word for it. Seek right theology. Don't seek the doctrines of men. And we, of all people, have access to 2,000 years of faithful preaching and teaching within the church from generations of Christians. We can know error from truth, but it takes work. And it's work you should be doing. It requires you to study. It requires you to pick up the scriptures and see if these things are true. Brothers and sisters, study the word. I know that there are many things that can distract us from so doing. I know that there are a wealth of options of, of things that we can distract ourselves with in which we can spend our time. Young people, you can spend all your time playing and entertaining yourself. But will you really be best served by another hour of video games? I'm not suggesting that we have no time for such things. I'm not saying that we don't have time to relax, uh, to uh, take in entertainment. But I will submit to you this. The problem in our culture is not one of we don't have enough time for entertainment. The problem in our culture is exactly the opposite. We take way too much time and spend it on enter entertainment. And I say this as guilty as any others. I can think of how many days I would come home from work and do nothing but sit and watch TV for four hours and not even pick up my Bible for four minutes. That's sin. I will say for myself, that was sin. That was sin. We spend, we spend far too much time on entertainment. Smartphones these days come with time trackers. How much time do you spend on social media? on the internet, on various games and apps. How much time do you spend in the Word? Right? You have the app on your, the Bible app on your phone, perhaps. How much time does it say you spend in that in a day in comparison to all the rest? You become what you take in. And woe to us for taking in such vain and vapid things that are produced by our culture more than the eternal living Word of God. And if that offends you, don't worry, it offends me too. Hear these words of the Apostle John in 1 John 2, 15-17. 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, things of the, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world is passing away and all of its sources of entertainment are passing away. Uh, that which people spend so much time, energy, and money on are temporary. They will soon be gone forever. May you bear this in mind always. God will have no rivals. 
you cannot serve two masters. Jesus tells us as much in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And we might amend Jesus' words there to say, you cannot serve God in entertainment. You cannot serve God in your sins because you can't have two masters. And some of you may well profess that Jesus is your Savior, but your life proves that you have another master. No one can serve two masters. Either Jesus is Savior and Lord, or he is nothing to you. And if nothing, then you shall not have any hope of eternal life or any part in the kingdom of God. Because God will punish sin, friend. God will bring to ruin all those who fail to be faithful towards him. And you may find that things are well for you now, as in Hosea's day, the people were in prosperity and goodness. And they thought, man, we're doing well. But do not let that fool you about what your future holds. Let me just say of our own culture again, we may find that, wow, we're doing well now. Look at how prosperous we are. But do not mistake prosperity for the blessing of God because they don't correlate. For all those who live in their sin will die in their sin. And all those who die in their sin shall be cast forever from his gracious and good presence, from God's gracious and good presence into that place called hell. What you think and say and do that are not in accord with the ways of God condemn you before him forever. And unless you repent, unless you turn from those things and unto God, you will suffer the just punishment of your sins for eternity. But the gracious ways of God are such. He has given up his only begotten son, Jesus. Christ Jesus came to this earth and lived the life of holiness you never could, but you should have. He died under the wrath of God for his people's sins, not his own. Rose victorious from the grave to defeat sin and death, not for himself alone, but for all who would call upon his name. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he waits to come again. And you, friend, can share in his resurrection if you trust in him by faith, if you seek him with all of your heart and strength and mind and soul. You will find the forgiveness of your sins, eternal life, and the goodness of God for all eternity. So confess your sins, turn from them in repentance, believe in the Lord Jesus, and be saved. And then faithfully seek after him. Study to know him. May it never be said of you, and may it never be said of this church, there is no knowledge of God there. Study his word and learn it. Let us pray. O great Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of evils committed against you. Forgive us, Lord, for not seeking you. Forgive us for not knowing you. Forgive us for not looking to your word. As the parable of Jesus ends, to whom much is given, much is required. And Father, how I confess of my own self, how much you have given me, and yet how little I have uh, faithfully discharged what you have. Forgive me for that, Lord. And I pray, Father, that for us all, as we confess before you our sins, that you would indeed forgive us. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of forgiveness, for the gift of grace and mercy that you have given unto us in Christ Jesus, your Son. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who regenerated and renewed us, that we may see and understand these things. And Father, how we pray that your Spirit would be poured out on this land, on those who do not know you. And Lord, may they have eyes to see the truth of your word. Father, would you save millions and millions in our land? Father, would you save thousands upon thousands and thousands here even in our own county? How much evil there is. How much swearing and lying and murdering and committing of adultery. How much false worship there is, even in places called churches. God, have mercy upon us. 
And may your spirit pour out on us, Lord, that we would see you in your glory and believe all that you have said and so orient our lives, pattern our lives after you, after our Savior Jesus, that we would walk in the spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. Lord, do this. Father, may we know you know you put a fire within our souls to study your word that we may know you god do that work which only you could do and father help us to be faithful to that work which you have called us unto Lord, we pray these things. We pray these things in the name and the character of our beautiful Savior, of the King of all glory, of King of kings and Lord of lords, of He who is exalted, the Lamb who is slain yet lives, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, He who is Christ, Messiah, Wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Word made flesh, Jesus. Amen.